And we've got Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, just around the corner. And speaking of the ISBA, we're going to have the president, the new president, Rory Weiler, on to chat about all things. Uh, First of all, he runs a family law firm and also about uh, things that they want to do with the Illinois State Bar Association this year and how that impacts you, including a text and a call that we get all the time that lawyers are too expensive. And you're right, they can be. uh, But one of the goals of the ISBA is to make lawyers lawyers uh, affordable, give people options, even if they don't have a lot of money. And he's going to talk about that. So if that pertains to you, you'll want to listen. We'll also have Mike Leonard on. Uh, He's a frequent guest on the show. We're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening uh, with the Mar-a-Lago situation. And of course, the recent court hearings about whether we're going to see the affidavit. We'll get to all of that. And we do have a question of the day, of course. We'll have some fun along the way. In fact, I'll give it to you right now. Maybe we'll get a guess and answer right away to start the show like we did last week. Here it is. Michigan was the first state to do this. Wisconsin was close behind. And then Illinois followed their lead 158 years later. What am I talking about? 312-981-7200. Michigan first, Wisconsin a close second, and Illinois following their lead 158 years later. 312-981-7200 if you got an answer to that. Uh, let's get legal. Coming up next on WGN. Michael Leonard going to be stopping by in just a moment. We're going to talk about the Trump affidavit issue, which uh, I know is big in the news, and some other cases as well. We'll take your calls on it. 312-981-7200 with any of your thoughts. Of course, it's one of the big legal stories stories dominating the headlines, uh, but we'll get to other things too. And then the president of the Illinois State Bar Association joining us to talk about uh, what he wants to do in the next year, what the whole Illinois State Bar Association wants to tackle, including uh, ways to make lawyers more affordable for folks that maybe don't have the money to pay for a lawyer, but certainly deserve that representation. But we got some guesses to the question of the day, which was Michigan, the first state to do this, Wisconsin close behind, and Illinois following their lead on 158 years later. Let's go to Laura on line one. All right, Laura, get us started. What's your guest this afternoon? Laura? Hi. Hi. How are you? Hi. What's your guess? I say cherry trees. Cherry trees, like planting cherry trees, maybe? Yes, planting cherry trees. Okay. Well, I know they've got a lot of them there. I don't know how many we have here in Illinois. That's just not the answer to the question of the day. I'm sorry, Laura. Let's go to line three. And Debbie, I believe. How are you doing this afternoon, Debbie? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. What's your guess? State fairs. Oh, it certainly is state fair season, of course, here in Illinois. Wisconsin just had theirs a couple weeks ago. Don't know about Michigan. It's a great guess. It's just not the answer. I'm sorry, Debbie. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. By the way, the winner's going to get a 100th anniversary WGN t-shirt. Trust me, it's pretty cool. Let's go to Nicholas on line two. Nicholas, how are you doing today? Hey, good. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for calling. Thank you. No, I love you guys. You guys are awesome. I love I love WGN. Oh, we love that. We love hearing that. All right, what's your guess, my friend? I was going to say, well, back in the day with, I mean, back in the day, um, pre- with President Lincoln, the black, the black laws, the African-American uh, black laws. I see what you're saying, like legalized segregation and the abolishment of that is what you're going with? Yes, because I like President Lincoln. Yeah, no, it's a good guess. It's just not the answer. I'm sorry, Nicholas. Oh, because you said 158 years ago, so I was like, oh, that's kind of like in that era. <laughs> 
I see where you're going with it, Nicholas. Yeah, no, it's a great guess. I'll repeat the question one more time. Michigan, the first state to do this. Wisconsin close behind. Illinois followed their lead 108 years later. Hmm, okay. Got some other calls calling in. You can keep on doing that. We'll also get Mike Leonard on the line, too, after this quick break here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. We're going to get to Mike Leonard in just a moment. We're looking for an answer to the question of the day, which is Michigan first state to do this. Wisconsin close behind. Illinois following their lead 158 years later. Just try and get one or two guesses here. Let's go to Marilyn on line one. Hey, Marilyn, how you doing? I'm fine. You don't sound fine, Marilyn. You, you, you sound like you're trying to convince yourself. No, 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 no. I had a huge uh, hack in my bank account, and I got it straightened out. So trust me, I'm fine. Hey, there you go. All right. You'll have to tell us how you did that on my other show, Your Money Matters. Okay. What's your guess? Statehood. Illinois became a state in 1818. Actually, we beat Michigan by about uh, 20 years. They didn't become a state till 1837, and Wisconsin not till 1848. So it's a good guess, just not the answer. Okay, Marilyn? Congrats on the bank account thing, okay? Okay, all right. Thank you. All right, let's get one more in here. This is a joint answer from Laura and Todd on line five. What are you guys calling together here next to the phone? Yeah, we're driving home, so we call together. All right. Okay. Uh, where are you guys driving home from? From Pena, Illinois, back to Chicago. Okay. All right. So, Lauren Todd, what's your guess? It's uh, women's right to vote. It's a great guess because Wisconsin was actually the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment, allowing women to vote. Illinois was also one of the first states, though, a little bit later on, and actually Michigan came a little bit after that. So it's a great guess, just not the answer. Okay, Lauren Todd, have a safe rest of your trip, okay? All right, thank you. Oh, there you go. They got both of them now. Okay, we'll try and get some more answers a little later on, but let's get our first guest on the line here from Leonard Trial Lawyers. Mike Leonard, how you doing, bud? John, how's it going today? I think with this overcast weather, we probably got maybe half a million more listeners because no one's doing anything outside, or else maybe 10 more listeners. I don't know which one. <laughs> let's go with the first guest, Mike. There you go. Let's go with a half million. Yeah, it's a big show here today because when the weather gets bad, some people, uh, of course, want to go for a little drive and turn on the radio. So, Mike, I, the first thing I want to ask you, obviously, we've had some different developments, well, sort of, in the uh, Trump, President, former President Trump affidavit and the uh, FBI um, executing the search warrant. And last week, and I've been really kind of echoing what you've been saying to other people, that them getting President Trump's, uh, the documents that he had may have been the end of it. And you suggested perhaps that there's very little chance that you think that President Trump uh, would ever be charged with anything. Does ever, anything that has happened in the last week change your mind on that? No, not yet. I mean, the, the big developments this week were the court in Florida, the federal court judge, uh, considered a motion brought by a large number of journalists who were arguing that because this is such an important uh, human interest and public interest story, the circumstances leading to the search of the Trump property, that the affidavit should be unsealed. And as you and I talked about last week, John, the the attorneys from the Justice Department had to go to the judge several weeks ago, and they provided him with a very detailed affidavit, which, in their minds, uh, proved that there was probable cause that a crime could have been committed. And on that basis, that affidavit, the judge went ahead and issued the search warrant. So that's where that's the issue that was in court this week. 
Okay, and what did you think about... I mean, the, the Justice Department says, well, we don't want this unsealed because it could reveal an information about the, a, a broader investigation or further investigation. And a lot of people point to that and say, see, they are looking at stuff that is different than what just happened in the search. Well, there's a couple of points there. I mean, number one, it's highly unusual, almost unheard of, for an affidavit that forms the basis for a search warrant to be unsealed, meaning given to the public while an investigation was taking place. Because, as you know, the mere issuance of the search warrant isn't a charge of any crime. So typically, the search warrants are, are never disclosed. You get them in discovery in the case once you are charged because, of course, you don't want the world or the attorneys or the defendant knowing that you're investigating them, what information you already have, who you've talked to, who are your sources. So there's a lot of things you want to protect. And, of course, they did. They have made some statements in court this week that it could impact other investigations. You know, what that means is anyone's guess. But all that would point to is, yeah, they might be investigating him for other things, but I guess it doesn't change my view that I don't think they're going to charge him here. But we probably should talk for a minute about what the judge actually ruled this week. Right. Right. It was surprising. The judge says he's leaning towards releasing some of the evidence presented by the U.S. Justice Department. He seems skeptical of their argument that they couldn't redact things or remove certain things, and it still would allow some light to be shed, kind of charting a middle path. Is that unusual? Well, it's very unusual. I mean, typically never at all are the affidavits released at this point in a proceeding. And, and there really isn't a proceeding in terms of any charges against the former president. But it's probably not really going to turn out to be a middle course, John, because what he said was, hey, government, go back to the drawing board. Give me a redacted copy of the affidavit, meaning you black out, literally black out the parts that you think that the public shouldn't see and you know, give me the remainder of what you think could be publicly disclosed. So the problem is going to be they're going to take a thick pen to this thing and their position is going to be, hey, judge, you know, we really have to redact 95 percent of it or or some crazy amount. And as the judge himself said this week, look, a lot of times when you get a redacted affidavit, it's just gobbledygook. It's gibberish. And he kind of forewarned everybody and said, look, even if I let some of the stuff be redacted and disclosed to you all, you, you, the public, you know, I'm not telling you or giving you any expectations about whether it's going to be helpful to you. In right. other words, what he's saying is, what he's saying is, hey, look, I'm going to I'm going to give you a little bit, but it's probably not going to be much, and it'll, it'll probably be along the line, along the lines, John, of what we talked about last week, where it'll probably be limited to things of a very basic, generic nature. For instance, we had discussions with ex-attorney for Trump, or we received this compliance or non-compliance. You know, the, kind of the steps that led to them telling the judge they had no other means other than search warrant. So once we get a redacted affidavit, I think we're all probably going to be pretty disappointed with, with what we actually get to see. Couldn't you argue that a redacted one causes more confusion even? It causes more speculation because you get a little bit of a taste here and there, maybe a name or a person A, and you start you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and it's all wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there is that danger that by giving the public some it's just going to lead for a lot of speculation and a lot of clamoring for more. But but there's no way that this judge is really going to let out sensitive information that would compromise the investigation. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, the Justice Department, um, like all federal prosecutors, you know, they, they want to give the judge sort of a, a parade of horribles, you know, how bad this would be, 
how it would compromise our investigation. But, you know, giving out generic information about kind of what led what it led to and ended their negotiations, that, that's not going to hurt anybody. But I think all in all, we're not going to get much, and we're all going to have still, to still wait and see. Can we take a peek behind the robe for a second? Depends what you're wearing, John, but yeah, I think we can. (laughs) I set him up, you knock him down. No, so what I wanted to do was... uh, We didn't didn't practice one, did we? No, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. This is the magistrate judge, Bruce Reinhart, who uh, approved of the Mar-a-Lago FBI search in the first place, right? It's the same judge. Exactly. So that's why it's appropriate for him to to make the call. But you got to keep in mind... Let's just say that he makes a particular ruling and says, hey, this much of it, you know, beyond what you, Justice Department lawyers, say should be public. If he makes a ruling adverse to them or they think it's adverse, they could actually appeal that and tie this thing up even longer. You know, right. so this really could be a football for quite some time. But, but what was kind of your inquiry about so, Judge Reinhardt in his robes? So, so after the ruling that he made allowing the search, of course, a lot of people attacked him in personal ways. Some of it was really crazy. And I know judges are supposed to just be so impartial and so immune to that criticism, that critique. But then you have another high-profile courtroom situation involving the same players. I don't know how any human would be able to tune out the noise from outside the courtroom and not at least try and offer a cookie to the side that you didn't that they didn't get their way the last time do you see what i'm kind of asking like as to not appear to be in the department of justice's pockets does he have to sort of show that well maybe i will allow a little of this to be released i'm not suggesting that's what happened here and i know they're above that well i think they are but i'm just highlighting that that's hard well yeah i mean let's face it there there are public considerations that go into judges mind and often play into their opinions even if they don't tell us so right you know you may have a high-profile sentencing of a defendant who's well-known. And clearly the judge understands that it's getting a lot of publicity, it's getting a lot of attention, and that people will look at it as something that might be precedential or might be taking a stand. So they're certainly well aware of all these factors. And you bring up a great point with this judge. I mean, he's been attacked. He's had death threats made against him. Um, He's been, you know, vilified uh, publicly by the side that, believes that he's, you know, pro, pro-government, pro you know, pro-FBI. So there's no question that it's got to enter his mind. But at the same time, you got to keep in mind that it's extremely unusual to give the public anything from an affidavit, okay? So to the extent that he gives the public something here, which he's going to do, gives them a, a few cookies or nuggets, as you put it, that'll be extraordinarily and, and that's why the Justice Department doesn't like this, because they think this sets a horrible precedent because, you know, they, they never want an affidavit unsealed while they're still investigating somebody and trying to make the decision whether to charge them with a crime. So you're right. He's definitely aware of it. He's personally aware of it from being, you know, subject to death threats and other threats. So uh, can it can it play in the decision making? Absolutely. But I don't think we should expect him to go too far in disclosing a lot of information. But he's certainly pushing back against the Justice Department, which I, which I always like to see.
<laughs> well, yeah, you're a federal defense attorney. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> but I guess everyone should like a little pushback, guy. right? Like, no one wants a freewheeling Department of Justice and FBI that can go anywhere they want all the time and doesn't get any pushback. It's a natural check that we have built into our system. And, uh, you know, there's going to be ones you like, ones you don't. But I feel like that's an important check to have there. Um, by the way, I want I do want to open this up to any questions you all have. 312-981-7200. Because there's a lot of moving pieces here. And this show is not about punditry or too much looking into the crystal ball. This show is about helping people understand this process uh, to become better informed citizens wherever they can, including myself. That's why I sit in this chair and not an actual lawyer so I can break things down. Mike, we did have a question from the 773 that wants to know, if there were charges against the former president, would he then, would the Department of Justice then try to uh, bar them from releasing a copy for the affidavit for search warrant? Or would that then become public? If there were charges, would we know a little bit more about the background or would that wait till a potential trial perhaps well the answer is a big maybe so um what happens typically is that is the lawyers would certainly get a copy of the affidavit that led to the search warrant because it might be the subject of a motion practice you know for instance if trump was charged with a crime his attorneys would have access to that affidavit they could make a legal argument to the court that there wasn't probable cause, there shouldn't have been a search in the first place, and try to suppress what was seized from Mar-a-Lago, right? Um, and it, it might also make the judge believe that, well, if he's actually charged, um, that this information is, is you know, it's going to be public eventually. Why not disclose that now? But there's, but there's still problems with that because you have a person facing charges. Again, you don't really want public information about who witnesses are or... True who they've talked to or who sources are. So the answer is a big maybe, but the fact that he does get charged would would certainly give more reason to release it publicly. But again, there's all those countervailing arguments that uh, lawyers would argue against. What, what was interesting, John, this week um, was the fact that the Trump camp did have counsel at that hearing, uh, but they didn't take any position. You know, they were not arguing to the court, hey, uh, release this information Give give us a give us a complete redaction of it. They didn't do that at all. Instead, they just stayed silent. So you know, publicly, they've made a lot of pronouncements like, "Hey, we want all this stuff to be released." But when it comes to the court proceedings, they did not file any motions to unseal the affidavit or or give a redacted version of the public. And you know, so what they're saying publicly in court are kind of two different things so far. Interesting stuff. All right, Mike Leonard, uh, you're going to stay on the line. Leonard Trial Lawyers is where you can go to get more information about what all that Mike does, and we'll get into that a little bit later on in this hour as well. And your questions, too, 312-981-7200. After a look at the news here on WGN. 720 WGN. Hey, everyone. John Hanson. This is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. You can give him a call, 312-815-6572. Mike, uh, I know you've been on a bunch, but for maybe our newer listeners, who uh, what sorts of uh, cases you take on? You're a federal defense attorney. You do some whistleblower laws, too, right? Yeah, so what we do is, on the criminal side, we primarily focused on representing individuals in federal criminal cases here in Chicago and throughout the country. But we also sometimes represent them in state criminal proceedings. And on the civil side, we regularly represent individuals who are bringing whistleblower cases and sometimes discrimination cases against large companies. So we're on the, what we call the plaintiff side. So John, we represent the good guys on both sides of our practice. 
Okay. I had an angry call, Mike, I want to tell you about during the uh, commercial break. Uh-oh. You ready for this? No, it's fine. I, I, I appreciate I appreciate any feedback, honestly. You're always welcome to uh, dispute anything I say, certainly, and our guests. And uh, we appreciate all calls and texts on the matter. You can keep them coming, 312-981-7200. And I wanted to bring this up only because I just want to make sure that we're understanding each other and that the listeners are, too. When we talk about the former president's case, the caller was suggesting that you know laws are there for a reason. You shouldn't just break the law. And that uh, President Trump, uh, if he if he broke a law, should be, and we and that you and I should be ashamed for suggesting otherwise. Um, I don't think either of us were suggesting that the president should or shouldn't. That's not our uh, what we're analyzing here. You were simply suggesting that you don't think there will be charges. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not taking the position that he shouldn't be charged. I think, uh, based upon what we know so far, clearly there there's a lot of reason to believe that he could be charged under the Espionage Act, possibly for possibly obstruction of, obstruction of justice, for also uh, violations of the Presidential Records Act. There, there's clearly uh, at least three three different federal crimes that potentially he could be charged with, although it's so early we don't know what the evidence is going to shake out to be. So I was never saying that they shouldn't prosecute him. I'm just making the prediction, the bold prediction maybe, that he's not going to be charged for the document issues. And I, I may turn out to be wrong, but... As you know, federal prosecutors have a lot of discretion to charge somebody or not charge somebody. And after after gathering all this evidence, if they're not convinced that they're going to win their case, you know, with proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they're not going to charge them because they don't want to lose the case and they don't want to be the subject of ridicule uh, and, and the, pub- the publicness of this matter. So I'm just making a prediction. I don't think for the documents issue they will charge him. I could be wrong, but it'll be fun to see whether it happens or not. But I never made the suggestion that he shouldn't be charged. And in fact, it is bothersome, you know, for, from someone who represents criminal defendants all the time, especially in federal court, the selectivity of who's prosecuted is very frustrating. Uh, it's not just the Trump case. It's all sorts of cases where you might represent an individual who did allegedly the exact same thing of five or six or 10 other people and a number of them aren't charged at all and who seem to be much more culpable than your client. And But there's really nothing you can do except howl at the wind that it's not there and, and they've, they've misused their discretion, but that doesn't get your case kicked out. Right. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we laid that all out for folks. And also, and in that weighing of whether they are going to charge the former president, not only do they have to take into consideration all that you mentioned about the public scrutiny and ridicule, but what you were saying, the likeliness of a conviction, I mean, we've only heard from, and we really haven't heard much, but we've only seen the actions of the DOJ. Of course, the former president should be afforded a strong defense that you know he's going to be able to provide for himself. They could argue that they were obtained illegally, that the president didn't know this or that the other thing i mean there's a lot of we've only been really seeing one side of this thing and in a court of law the former president would be entitled to as strong a defense as he's able to produce well yeah the problem is so far we have, we have such little information okay we know a search warrant was issued we know the types and categories of documents that they were seeking we don't know which ones they found we don't know who took them under what circumstances we don't even know right now you know, were they really of the top secret and secret, you know, the, the highly classified levels that have been talked about? They may be, but they may not be the documents that are great significance to the national defense or something else like that. And and we, we talked about last week, this Espionage Act, it's, it's going to require more than just a showing that he had the documents. It's got to show that, you know, they were, they were somehow furthering the national interest or national defense 
and he attempted to use them, you know, for purposes against them. So there's there's a lot of considerations. We just it's so early here yeah. uh, to make you know to make arguments about what's going to happen. But it will be fun to see if I'm proven dead wrong, uh, and they do charge him for the documents, or, or or whether I'm right. You know, that that's the fun part of this. Yeah, if you're dead wrong, well, we're going to have a special Let's Get Legal, whatever day that is, and uh, no, I'll call you on in. No, I'm just kidding, Mike. I mean, you're making a prognostication based on your expertise. That's why we have you on the program. 312-981-7200. You can lodge any other complaints to the department. A rating will take it all down, or you can go ahead and text it on in. And uh, no, I uh, seriously, I do appreciate people uh, chiming in because it gives us a chance to maybe rephrase something in a way if we had uh, leaned one way or another or it appeared that we did that. I want to get off uh, the, pre- the former president stuff a little bit. But uh, big news in in, in a case that you represent about charges in a federal gun case, correct? Yeah, it's always fun on a Friday night to get a call from prosecutors, federal prosecutors, who who are telling you that they're going to dismiss entirely the case that we were scheduled to go to trial on Tuesday of next week. So we were set to go to trial in federal court on Tuesday, coming up in a a few days here, uh, on a federal gun case. And so... They told us probably five o'clock Friday afternoon that they're going to move the judge to dismiss everything, which, again, is, is a one in a trillion and it's uh, music to our ears. Well, you've and had that twice, though, in, in a couple of weeks, though. I know. I know. I, I told <laughs> you a couple of months ago that this never happens and now it's happened to us twice. So I feel very fortunate that, you know, we've done our jobs and our clients uh, have been released. But uh, this case was particularly gratifying because. Uh, the gentleman was charged earlier this year, and the facts were there were probably eight, anywhere from eight to ten people outside a Chicago residential building. And on one of those uh, Chicago Police Department poll cameras, um, someone in the booth uh, believed that they had seen uh, some of the people out there with what they thought were firearms. You know, they they couldn't exactly pinpoint what they possessed, but they used the poll camera evidence to go get a search warrant of the residential house. And so they went in there and, and searched for hours and they did come up with two firearms and a BB gun. Okay. So then the question was, you know, since my client didn't even leave, leave uh, live in that house, you know, how could they potentially prove that it was, that it was his firearm if it even was a firearm. So, you know, we, we demanded what's called a speedy trial, meaning we wanted to go to trial very quickly in federal court, which is a somewhat unusual tactic because typically the government has so much more information than you do and you need time to process it. But we thought very strongly about our defense, demanded trial, got a trial date real quickly. And then a lot of things developed over the last couple months. You know, we had expert witnesses and uh, the, the government set the gun out that they said our client possessed to get DNA testing on that. And the government expert came back and said, no, there's a major contributor of DNA to this gun, but it's not the defendant, which obviously was huge news to us. Um, And then the second thing that happened is we had an expert who looked at the firearm that the government was charging our client with and compared that to the object that defendant had when the police looked at the poll camera. And the expert said, no, these objects cannot be the same because there's something very particular about the trigger in, Hmm. in the videos. So, we thought we had a very strong defense and a likelihood of getting a not guilty jury verdict, which is always extremely satisfying. But it's better when the government says, hey, we don't even have to go to trial. Your guy walks free and all charges are dismissed. So we, we were very gratified. And, you know, you got to tip your cap slightly to the federal government because they could have taken the case to trial. 
and and seen what would have happened. But here, they actually appropriately exercised their discretion and said, we're not going to pursue the case, which, again, does not happen very often. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that a lot of people, uh, you know, when they hear, oh, it's a federal gun case, there's an assumption of guilt. And I know a lot of people are armed. I want to say armed. They're, they are amped up about the gun rights issues and what's happening in certain communities. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the government still has to follow the rules and the, the chain of command and the evidence has to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. This is uh, as amped up as we are about certain issues. We still, you know, encourage everyone that should have a, an ample defense of those sorts of things yeah and obviously we all know there's a gun problem out there in chicago and elsewhere but i don't think many people want people convicted uh when they didn't possess the gun you know it doesn't really serve any purpose it doesn't advance the goal of getting guns off the street if you put people in prison who weren't the people who were manufacturing or possessing the gun so uh, a great result very exciting and it makes my weekend a lot better, John, because I don't have to spend 10 hours a day preparing for the trial. So I'm, I'm happy for that reason as well. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, you can take a momentary brief uh, uh, breath of fresh air, Mike. We're going to take a quick commercial break. 312-981-7200. Getting some good texts and questions on in. Add yours to the list. And we'll get to them next here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. 720 WGN, it is 149. We got a few minutes left here with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. And you can go to leonardtriallawyers.com, L E O N A R D, triallawyers.com. 312 815 6572 is how you can reach Mike and his team over there. All right, Mike, I got to ask you about the R. Kelly thing. And here's why is because I feel like we just got the news of his long sentence this past, uh, what was it, late June? We found out he was. Uh, likely to spend 30 years behind bars. And then all of a sudden, he's popping up in the news again. And I'm not one to try and bury my head in the sand about very serious things, but it's something that has just dragged on forever. What is, why is he back in court? I'm so confused. What is this trial that he's going through now? Sure. Um, so as you recall, there was an initial federal prosecution in New York in federal court in Brooklyn some, some months ago. And that case was under somewhat unique legal theory under the RICO Act, R-I-C-O. And the Mm -hmm. federal prosecutors in New York were making the argument and bringing the legal case that Mr. Kelly operated his band as what's called a criminal enterprise. So it was a unique legal theory. That was the, those were the federal charges in that particular case. Now uh, go forward. And now we have a completely different federal prosecution for different charges. So in this case, there's no RICO allegations, but the, the charges brought here in Chicago in federal court are based upon uh, Mr. Kelly's alleged production and use and transportation of child pornography. So a completely mm. different federal statute. So, you know, there's some, oh, oh, there's some overlap in terms of the type of conduct that we're talking about, but it's under a completely different statutes and legal theories. And we probably should talk a little bit, John, about the background to this case because it originates from a Cook County case like 20 years ago. Okay, yeah, why don't you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, so I think what people are also maybe confused about, they keep hearing about the Cook County case. So uh, in 2002, in state court in Illinois at 26 in California, Mr. Kelly was charged with having um, sexual relations with a minor, and that case ultimately went to trial in 2008, you know, some 14 years ago. And the key issue in that case was, who is the person in the video with Mr. Kelly? 
And the state's attorney's office was unable to prove who the person was or that it was a minor. And it resulted in the jury acquitting Mr. Kelly of the charges at that time. This case in federal court now harkens back to that case. What they're saying is that the minor in that video, who's now a witness in the federal court case, was coerced to essentially be kept away from the courthouse during that trial. And she now has testified in the federal case that indeed was her and that she detailed all the steps that were taken to keep her away from the courthouse. So it's sort of a a fraud upon the system type factual theory, right? So, So that's what we're hearing about now is the case in federal court in Chicago. There's been some, you know, really significant, significant and troubling testimony so far, including from that minor who was, you know, allegedly kept away from the courthouse, you know, 14 years ago, her testifying, that's her. The video was shown to the federal jury under some very special circumstances so the public couldn't see it. So, you know, the, the government's case is still going. They're st- still putting evidence on against Mr. Kelly for those actions. So I, um, I know it's not unusual. We've talked a lot about it on the on this show. In fact, you and I have chatted about uh, cases that are decided in the state court, and then the federal uh, court could also issue charges based on whether it's a hate crime or the, some level. But to have two federal cases on on very similar things, I'm just so used to like they just roll all the charges into one big case versus two separate ones in two separate jurisdictions. I guess what I'm getting at is this unusual. It is, it is somewhat unusual for, for a public figure like this, for them to handle it in two ways. I mean, quite honestly, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, territory wrangling that went into this one. You know, you had federal prosecutors in New York, you know, badly wanting to bring a case against Mr. Kelly at the same time that Chicago federal prosecutors were badly wanting to bring a case against Mr. Kelly. So we all want to think that they all work cooperatively, but the reality is, you know, they were trying to get to the courthouse door first, those two jurisdictions, and the New York case, they had to make some nexus to New York in order to make their case, and so they came up with kind of a unique legal theory, and, you know, they sort of were able to preempt the Chicago prosecutors in unsealing their case. So, you know, part of it is the notoriety of Mr. Kelly and those two different prosecutor offices badly wanting to bring the case. And clearly, you know, you could have you could have done it differently. But some of the some of the claims and charges in the Chicago federal case probably couldn't have been brought in New York because there's not an appropriate connection to the state of New York and, and to that venue. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not discounting that there, there need to be charges and you need to set these precedents and you need to establish this sort of law and to test it out and to uh, bring justice for people. And uh, I'm not trying to discount. I just was curious about the irregularity of it. OK, I, we got about three minutes left, Mike. I wanted to ask you, you know, and we talked about the January 6th defendants uh, months ago when we were still kind of in the phase where there weren't uh, hugely serious um, jail time sentences yet. Well, that's started to change as we've started to get to some of the tougher uh, statutes that were broken and juries deciding that in trial cases or judges and plea cases. I guess that's, you know, for, for a long time, people were saying, why aren't these people being charged with stronger crimes? I guess it was just a matter of, of time for the federal government to get through these cases that they viewed as, as, as more substantial. Yeah, well, well, two points. One one point I want to make a, a correction or modification. You know, when I was talking about the federal gun case that has gone away, um, you know, my co-counsel in the case 
oftentimes you co-counsel with someone who's not from your own firm. You work together for trial purposes. And that person was Gabriel Sansonetti, and she was extremely instrumental in bringing about that result. So I don't want to make you think that it was only the work of Leonard trial lawyers in that case, John, because Ms. Sansonetti was was huge in bringing about that result for for our client. Okay. Um, but as to as to your question about the January sixth prosecutions, look. There were there's hundreds of these cases that have been filed, including against a number of people from the state of Illinois. The easiest ones to adjudicate to get a plea agreement in, in place and to get a plea were some of the more minor ones. You know, a mere trespass where someone might have simply gone in there, not done anything other than, you know, wrongfully enter the building. But the more serious ones where people went in the building, might have had weapons, might have had other devices, might have made threats might have made, went into members of Congress's offices. Those are, of course, more serious crimes, you know. And so those, of course, are going to have a more robust defense because the potential sentence is far greater than somebody trespassing into the building. And so they're going to be fought harder. There's going to be motion practice. The cases are going to take longer. But now we're seeing some of the more serious cases. People are getting some really harsh sentences. And I think a lot of people think those are appropriate because they view this as sort of a coup upon our government and you know i know other people entirely disagree with that but we're getting we're getting to the more heart of some of the more serious activities in terms of what the defendant's conduct was that day for sure all right mike leonard that's going to do it for today leonard lawyers.com is where folks can go for more information l-e-o-n-a-r-d lawyers.com. the phone number 312-815-6572 mike i appreciate your time okay john enjoyed it thanks a lot talk to you soon yeah, we'll talk again very soon, I am sure of that. Okay, I'm excited to welcome the fairly new president of the Illinois State Bar Association on this show for the first time, Rory Weiler, who's also a family law attorney, joins us. And Rory, congratulations. Thanks for hopping on with us today. Well, thanks for the invitation, John. And, and of course, it's a great honor to represent uh, ISBA's 28,000-plus lawyers. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you went to NIU and then you went to the University of Chicago Law School. So you're uh, you're you're long well known in the area. Well, yeah, I've been practicing for about 43 years now. Uh, I started so long ago that it was called the John Marshall Law School back in the day. <laughs> um, but my uh, uh, my practice is uh, devoted solely to uh, I shouldn't say my practice, our practice. Uh, I have a son and a partner and an associate. But uh, we do uh, family law and, and, and nothing but family law. So uh, we're a one-trick pony, but it's a pretty good trick. <laughs> yeah, it's an important one. You're often dealing with some of the most emotional things that people have to go through. And family law is a lot more than uh, the one trick of divorce. There's so many other things that have to do with family law, which I do want to dive into. But I first just, you know, we, we say Illinois State Bar Association all the time on this show. And I just like to remind people who you guys are and what you do. So and, you know, I know you represent a lot of lawyers and you help a lot of lawyers out, but this permeates down to everyday folks here in Illinois, too, right? Well, it sure does. I mean, we have uh, we're very, very actively involved with our partners in the uh, legal aid community. Our members are out there providing uh, pro bono services through uh, the various providers. We have uh, established uh, an initiative to bring uh, lawyers and legal services to underserved communities. Uh, We started in the uh, rural areas of our state with what we call the Rural Practice Initiative. And uh, based on the success of that, we're going to expand uh, that initiative into the uh, 
underserved communities in the urban areas of our state, uh, starting downstate in the larger cities, Peoria, uh, East St. Louis, Belleville, et cetera. But the idea is to uh, afford uh, the public access to a lawyer uh, when they need one. And we find that more and more these days, folks are choosing to go on unrepresented uh, because they think that they can't afford a lawyer. And uh, one of the missions of ISBA and our members is to uh, is to let people know that there are opportunities and options available to them, uh, no matter what their, uh, their income uh, level might be. I think that's such a noble cause, an important one in, in terms of how our fabric of our justice system and society holds together and an important part moving forward. I, I think we all would love to, uh, you know, quote that justice is blind and equal uh, application of law across all. But if someone is representing themselves in court and they haven't studied this thing, there's a, a good chance they're not going to get an outcome that they want, an outcome that they mo- more than likely deserve, right? I mean, lawyers help connect the dots and help inform people of the best practices and decisions to get them the best possible outcome. And when they represent themselves 99 times out of 100, probably more than that, they're not going to get that. Well, that's true. And, and of course, uh, our, our judiciary and our judges at the local level are great. Of they, course. They try to the extent that they, they can, because obviously there are ethical constraints that prevent them from giving non-represented or self-represented, rather, litigants uh, legal advice. But, but if we can, and we have, uh, we have worked with our Supreme Court to uh, uh, to put some uh, uh, legal forms online that, mm-hmm. that folks can access. Uh, and, and we are, as I said, constantly working toward, uh, you know, making um, uh, lawyers available at a fee that people can afford. We have a lawyer referral service through the Illinois State Bar Association that many folks take advantage of. And quite often, uh, especially when people are injured through, uh, uh, you know, the acts of uh, others, they don't realize that you don't you don't need any money to hire a lawyer. Uh, in the vast majority of those cases, where someone else has injured you or a loved one um, uh, wrongfully, um, uh, there there are many, many, many uh, 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 lawyers who are available to meet with you and work with you. And, uh, and really, if, uh, uh, if there's no recovery, they don't receive a fee. So right. it's yeah, important we've, for we, people to know that. We have a lot of great personal injury lawyers that come on this program, and we always get a few texts from people, you know, you know, there's a reputation maybe out there about personal injury lawyers and, and, and what they what they end up making. But we always point to the fact that you're coming to them on their worst day, and they're, they're taking the case, and if they if they don't win, they don't get anything. They're in your, they're in your court, right? They're, they're helping you out, and it, of course they deserve to be compensated for that as well. I think it's just a, we're just trying to challenge the misnomer out there, and uh, I, I, there's so many great personal injury lawyers who really have a passion for it, and they are part of the Illinois State Bar Association. I love when they come on the show to try and dispel some of those issues. And, you know, we often talk about on the show with lawyers about, oh, we've all heard the bad lawyer jokes, and we've all heard the lawyer jokes in general, and we can all chuckle at them, but lawyers play such an important part in the fabric of, of who we are and what our country means. And I guess it's fine to jest at it as long as at the end of the day, people realize the, the important function that lawyers play. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, as lawyers, we've all heard the jokes. And, you know, I don't know too many thin-skinned lawyers, so uh, <laughs> it, it's not the jokes. Uh, it, but, but what it is, uh, you know, frankly, John, it's a matter of uh, 
of educating the public. I mean, the lawyers, uh, first of all, lawyers created this country for the most part. And, yep. and secondly, lawyers are the defenders of the rule of law. Uh, we, the lawyers, are the folks who are out there uh, representing, uh, you know, those folks who most need representation. Uh, as lawyers, it, it's our responsibility to give voices to people whose society will not hear. Uh, that's our job, and, and, and if I may say, I think we do an exceptional, an exceptional job of it. But, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know too many lawyers that care about lawyer jokes. I, <laughs> I know a lot of lawyers that are, you know, that care about their clients and seeing to it that uh, in, in, in some measure justice being somewhat of a, uh, an amorphous concept. But, but what we want is we want everyone to be treated fairly and for everyone to have their, their day in court. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's our job. Yeah, usually when I go to commercial break, they've got a new one for me, so uh, a new joke for me, so they everyone's a part of it. So, um, well, I might want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, right. You mentioned the Illinois Lawyer Finder, which is on the website, ISB.org, and um, boy, what a great resource. And when I open that up and start to you know look through it, I, I become immediately more aware of how many things you do need a lawyer. And I get a lot of calls here, and we get people wondering, do I need a lawyer from this? And if you're already asking that question, there's a good chance you do. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If you're asking that question, uh, the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, because, it, you know, clearly if, if I have a toothache, uh, I'm not going to sit here and ponder, should I go to the dentist and get it taken care of? Um, that, 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 that's what professionals are there for. And, and certainly that's the role that uh, the lawyers play in, in our society. For sure. As I look at the categories, business, consumer law, criminal defense, education, schooling, immigration, labor, employment. I mean, it goes on and on. And I guess that's, you know, one of the benefits of having this website, ISPA.org, and then this uh, find a lawyer, you can hit the button and look. But if nothing else, it's not a bad thing for everyone to look at even the different cases that lawyers take on, because I think a lot of us do things without lawyers and end up with results that could have been a lot better if we had them. So even if it's not something that pertains to you immediately, look at the list because you may be surprised to find out what a lawyer can do to help you. Well, and, and again, as I said, it's surprising how uh, uh, affordable uh, you know a visit with a lawyer or a lawyer services can be. We have opportunities under our rules now to provide what's called limited scope representation, which generally means you may have a problem that uh, that requires uh, an attorney's input to uh, to secure some resolution or a partial resolution, but who who can guide you through the rest of it, um, and, and that that is a very very underused but very affordable way of uh, accessing legal advice and legal services. For sure. And I, I just looked through these lists and we've had lawyers on on this program over the past. Well, it's just been about a year and a month now since we started last July. And we've kind of checked all these boxes. And it's interesting to me. I'm always wondering, oh, this seems a little bit more niche or something that is uh, it's not going to it maybe doesn't impact as many people. And I am proven wrong every time on this show by the number of callers we have that have questions about things that I didn't consider. And it just goes to show that, you know, everyday Illinoisans and other listeners in other states, we're dealing with a lot of things in our lives and everyone has that one thing that is important to them or that they've been impacted by. And uh, it just goes to show the uh, how how broad a lawyer's reaches are. Well, I, and I, 
not only do I concur, but I can I can say that I'm a lawyer. And, uh, you know, it doesn't happen daily, but it happens frequently where I go, wow, that, that that's a legal issue? I didn't, I didn't <laughs> even know that that particular law or regulation existed. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it is, in a country of our size and in a state of our size, uh, believe me, uh, it, it's amazing uh, what, what issues can come up that require uh, a lawyer's uh, time and, and, and services. Well, let's just say that since before the show started, my entire uh, experience in the law world was uh, what I saw on TV <laughs> or on the movies. I think that's where a lot of people approach like what law is, and the reality is, for the most part, it's a way more boring. No offense, uh, but it's, uh, well, it's yeah. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but, please uh, do. Yeah, bore, it, it is. It, it, yeah, it, it's a lot less exciting. It's a lot more boring, and uh, frankly, it's a lot more real. Uh, my, my, my wife is a, a great, uh, a great fan of legal uh, dramas and I, I simply can't watch them because I sit there and go, Oh, that would never happen. Oh no, no. What, what about an objection? Uh, you know, you just have to, you know, as lawyers, we, we, I don't think you find too many lawyers that watch those shows. Right, right. No, I'm the same way about any show about radio or TV or anything like that. I'm like, that's not how we do it. Um, I, we got about three minutes before the news. We're going to get to the uh, family law stuff after the news break, but I just want to give you a chance to talk about what your goals are here for this next year uh, as president of the Illinois State Bar Association. Well, first and foremost, as I mentioned, uh, we, we need to uh, focus our attention on access to justice issues and reducing the number of self-represented litigants in our in our courtrooms. Uh, and part and parcel of doing that is, is us coming up with programming that, like our, our rural practice initiative, that's going to pair lawyers uh, with uh, either existing practices or with communities that need lawyers in them. Um, the, the, uh, the need is overwhelming, and it's, it's a project that is near and dear to my heart. Part and parcel of that is going to be to work with our partners and the other bar associations. You know, Chicago Bar, of course, is a large association, and there are others throughout the state uh, to uh, come together with our legal aid providers and, uh, and, and address this very pressing issue. I also plan on, uh, when the opportunity presents itself, uh, getting to our elected officials and urging them to increase the funding for the Legal Services Corporation which is the primary funder of um, legal aid services throughout the country. Um, so uh, those are a couple of big things. The other uh, item that is always on every president's agenda, of course, is being able to increase and enhance the services for our members. Um, we're all fighting for dues dollars, and we understand that uh, you know every dollar is precious, and, and, and people aren't going to keep paying you yeah, unless you're providing them with... Uh, with the services that they think are, are uh, of value for their dues dollar. Do some of those services and, and help you provide uh, also extend to maybe law students that are currently in that? Do you try and establish those relationships as someone is even entering the process of becoming a lawyer? Uh, absolutely. In fact, I'll be out in DeKalb talking to uh, the incoming class of 1Ls uh, this upcoming week. And uh, I think, my uh, speaking for me and, and, and the other officers, uh, getting back into the law schools and rebuilding the bonds with the law school deans uh, and, and letting the students know not just what the practice is about, but what ISBA can do for them 
uh, when they become practicing lawyers is a very important issue for us. For sure. All right, Roy, we're going to put you on hold, but we're just starting our conversation. After the news, we're going to chat a little bit more about your firm, uh, Weiler and Langle. Am I saying that right, by the way, Weiler and Langle? Yes. That you, All right. That's it. And it's W-E-I-L-E-R-L-E-N-G-L-E.com. If you're interested in reaching out, we'll get into all of that coming up. Uh, on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. This is Let's Get Legal. It's powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We've got the president of the ISBA on the line right now, Rory Weiler. And Rory, you're a family law attorney. In a, Well, that's your main job. I imagine ISBA is something that you have to uh, fit into the rest of your work schedule, which I imagine is busy. Why family law? Is that always what you uh, had your mindset on, or did you get into it and, and fall in love with it? What, what, what led you to that? Well, it was somewhat of an acquired taste. I, I originally thought when I got out of law school, I'd like to be a criminal defense attorney um, until I met my first criminal. And um, <laughs> I, I told the partner I was working with, this guy belongs in jail. And he said, that's not our job. <laughs> I said, I need to be thinking about a different job. But, right. Uh, no, I, I started working in a small uh, farming community, Elburn, Illinois, about uh-huh. 50 miles west of the city. And the uh, gentleman I was working for at the time had a fair amount of family law uh, practice, but uh, he became a judge. I took over the firm, and the long story short is uh, the more and more family law cases I did or had, the more I uh, was preferred and took on and uh, it sort of became uh, a situation where I, I didn't have time to do anything else but. So having developed some modicum of uh, of uh, experience and expertise, I figured I would, uh, you know, concentrate my efforts in that field. And it, it's worked out, obviously, very well for uh, for me and, I am, you know, for 43 years, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I imagine that, um, obviously, these are very difficult and emotional cases. Maybe some of the most emotional cases happen in family law. Not all of them, but they all, especially if they involve kids, that's an issue, or businesses, that's a problem, or uh, something you have to solve and, and deal with, and there's a lot of back and forth. But at the end of the day, you're trying to solve problems for people and give them you know, new opportunities to move on and be happy. And, and the end must be a rewarding part and kind of your guiding post to why you do what you do. Well, that, that's where, you know, a, a lot of the satisfaction in, in our practice uh, doing divorce and family law comes from. It's it's you get people at the worst, you know, li- the, literally, it's like a death. It's the death of, you know, a marriage uh, and, and they're grieving. And it's one of the worst times, if not the worst time of their entire lives. And you have an opportunity to kind of shepherd them through the system and, and uh, you know, it, it takes a great deal of uh, empathy and, and uh, compassion. And, and obviously, I, I think we have that because after 43 years, we're still doing it and people are still uh, calling. So, um, yeah, I, but, but that, that's where the satisfaction comes from, really. I've talked to a lot of family law lawyers who I think that you guys, after a certain amount of time, does deserve a, psych- a psychology degree or something along those lines, because <laughs> you you have I mean really you're dealing with such emotions that you you end up being I don't want to say a shoulder to cry on, but in many ways you have to do a lot of listening and helping people through it. I know you're not giving relationship advice per se, but you are navigating them through a world, and you've seen a lot of it. So there almost becomes this you you're 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 the expert 
expert on on difficult situations, and I'm sure you have developed a skill in talking to people and and, and expressing that empathy and sympathy and trying to get them along that journey. Well, and, and you know, really, it, most people just want somebody to, to listen to them. Um, and it's worked very well for me, and I think my colleagues, uh, and obviously I've got many successful colleagues, you know, if you're a good listener and you give people the opportunity to tell you, you know, and not just what their story is, but, but why their story is what it is, how they feel, why they feel that way, um, you know, being able to listen and, and to empathize with people and to show them, a, you know, a little compassion, especially in today's world, um, it, it, it's it's really, you know, appreciated. And, and I'm constantly amazed at how infrequently it happens. But, yeah. um, you know, that, that's that's what we try to do. Uh, and and uh, that's the approach that uh, that we take. We, 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 you know, these aren't our divorces. Uh, these right. are our clients' divorces. And we tell them right up front, you know, you're in control here. We're, we're here to help you. But, you know, we have the easy part. We just have to tell you what the law is and give you advice. The hard part is having to make decisions. And right. um, that's, um, well, as I said, that's uh, it's kind of a, a philosophy of practice. It seems to have worked well for us. In all this time, has the family law landscape changed a bunch, or are we still dealing with very much the same issues we've always had to deal with and just kind of maybe the methodology or the difficulty in certain cases, uh, th- those have been consistent throughout? Like, I-, I-, I talk to family lawyers all the time about how, like, finding assets, is it harder now? I mean, are people, more people hiding money in cryptocurrency? Like, what has changed over these years, right? Well, it, yeah, it's... it's uh... The technologies and the in the um, uh, the mechanics, those things change. The laws certainly change, but but the one oh, the, the one thing that hasn't changed that's remained the same probably since you know, um, and since Adam and Eve first got together <laughs> is that there's an emotional backdrop that no matter what what uh, you know year or era or generation you're in remains the same. As I said, I'm kind of spanning now 43 years of practice. So, you know, is the practice the same as it was when I started? No. Are the laws the same? No. Um, the laws have changed dramatically, even within the last five or six years. Uh, but, 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 you know, the approach, the human element is, is, uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much the same. It's just what, People have more access to electronics now, so they, you know, you hear yes. from them more frequently. Oh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know quite how to take that, but I think I do. Um, I, you know, you mentioned the laws that have changed, including big ones, and I'm kind of naive on the subject, but I know we're like a no fault state here in Illinois. Is that one of the laws you're referring to that has changed, or is it different, or is it all sorts of things? Well, actually, that changed. 20 years or so oh, okay. ago, it, it did recently change back in 17, but not not so dramatically that it made, because it's still pretty much a no-fault state. But but what we've done, and, and I don't know um, really if I think this is a good idea or a bad idea, but what we've done is, is uh, when I say we, I mean the state legislature and a, uh, uh, in, in writing up the laws and so forth, we've come up with a lot of formulas and we've come up with a lot of, um, uh, you know, we, we've taken some of the lawyering out of, of divorce work, which Interesting. on some level is a good thing. 
Um, for instance, child support and maintenance. Uh, when I first started, uh, every every courthouse or every uh, circuit I went into, rather, would have their own little um, chart as to, you know, what's the income? Okay, here's what child support is, blah, blah, blah. Um, now we have statewide guidelines that cover child support. So if, if you're, uh, you know, someone who's making under a half a million dollars a year, you know, obviously that, that covers a lot of ground as far as people goes. Most of us, yeah. It's much a computer. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a computer-generated outcome. What's your income? What's uh, your spouse's income? How many kids? And uh, out comes the result. Hmm. So um, that part of it, I, as I said, it's, it's taken some of the lawyering out of it, which I think in a lot of cases is a good thing. For sure. Hey, uh, we still have a few more minutes, uh, Rory, but I want to put you on hold because I do have a couple more questions. If you don't mind sticking around a little longer, is that okay? Sure. Absolutely. Love it. Right. Great. The president of the Illinois State Bar Association and family law attorney, Rory Weiler, and I will give out his website, weilerlangle.com. That's W-E-I-L-E-R-L-E-N-G-L-E.com. These are free plugs for someone coming on here to chat about these things. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll get more here on Let's Get Legal. All right, Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We've got the president of the ISBA. He's a family law attorney, Rory Weiler. All right, Rory, I, you know, when we were in the pandemic and we were filling time here on the radio, we got a bunch of stories of people saying, oh, man, the divorce rate's going to go through the roof after the pandemic's over because so many people have to hang out a lot longer than they thought they would together. Did that end up happening in your world, or was that just uh, something that we prognosticated or thought would happen that never manifested itself? Well, I, actually, I don't know that it increased dramatically. Uh, we noticed an increase in activity at our firm. But principally, I, I think that the effect of the pandemic was that, you know, uh, people who might have been thinking, you know, I'm going to stay in this for the kids, which is a pretty common, uh, uh, you know, thought, sadly, because uh, it doesn't benefit the kids. But anyhow, right. it, you know, I, I think it was more of a cathartic event for people saying, you know what? I'm not waiting. I gotta. I have to make a move. So while I think there might have been a slight uptick in the divorce rate, I wouldn't say it was the kind of uh, deluge. And I was one of them. I, I mean, I, I thought, oh, you know, this is <laughs> people are going to be going uh, crazy to get out of marriages. But as I said, there was a slight uptick, which I would say right now is probably settled back. You know, yeah. sadly, we're in the high 40s, 47, 48% of all marriages end in divorce. Oh, I, I thought that number had come down further than that, but I, I mean, you would know. It, 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 it has come down a little, but it, it's still in that that very high range. And one of the reasons it's come down, quite honestly, is that a lot of people, people are waiting longer to get married, and uh-huh. a lot of people simply aren't getting married. But right. not getting married if you're going to complicate your life and have children or, you know, buy things together and so forth and so on, I mean, that. You still need a lawyer because now we're talking about uh, a uh, a parentage case instead yeah. of a divorce. Yeah, so. I, I, we've done we've done stories and had people on about uh, cohabitation going up, and you know that's you know that's people's choice to do that, but it really doesn't provide anyone any legal security in many ways unless you drop some sort of contract in some way. But uh, I, I did want to ask about 
um, you know, maybe maybe advice is the wrong word, but you know, you mentioned that forty-seven, forty-eight percent. Of course, no one gets married thinking they're going to get divorced. Is there things that people can be doing, even if they're in the happiest of marriages, that, and that may actually strengthen a marriage? But things that people can do, not to prepare for what if things happen, but just things that people can do smartly in the in case something bad were to happen down the line like is there conversations that spouses should be having together that are going to make that process easier should it ever come to it well i i think the easiest way to avoid a divorce is to uh, communicate with your with your your spouse your significant other um i I mean if you're not talking to each other um that that that, that's going to be that's going to create problems and the less communication you have, the more likely it is that you're going to end up talking to me or one of my colleagues about a divorce or some other form of family law release. I mean, should we know like each other's finances? Like, should we know passwords to logins to accounts? Like, I, I mean, I know that's not not necessarily for you to determine everything that we do in our own lives and relationships, but does that make things at least a little bit more so that everyone knows what the situation is? Because I just hear all the time that finances and spending or whatever it is ends up being such a controversial thing for people. Well, it, you, it, when it comes to that, you're talking to somebody who's been married for 47 years. So <laughs> at this point, my wife and I have very few secrets. Yes, true, 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 true. <laughs> uh, but but, but I, I think it's just a matter of good economic planning for, uh, you know, if you're not intimately involved with your spouse's financial situation, which in my world is, is a red flag. I mean, if somebody doesn't want you to know what's going on in his or her life financially, that that reflects to me, well, a, a lot of things, but it, it reflects a significant problem in the relationship. Mm-hmm. But if you're not going to be sharing that information, you certainly ought to have some vehicle in place that, you know, if something happens to me, look at this. Um, right. So that, you know, there is some uh, ability uh, to, to dig through that, that stuff should the need arise. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, you mentioned cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all that a little earlier. It's a much more complicated economic world than it was even 10 years ago. Right. So I think that a, a good marriage is built on a foundation of mutual trust, and, and that involves sharing and communicating. And it also happens, if, it's also a good thing if you happen to enjoy the company, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good box to check the there. Grow up and they leave, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, you should like the other person. That's a good good advice here from uh, Roy, yeah. Rory, the president of the Illinois State Bar Association. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask about, I know it's always uh, a topic that you guys, I'm sure, are diving through is allocation of parental rights and responsibilities or child custody visitation. I know the landscape has changed. Look, I mean, so many more marriages involve two people working equally. Women are breadwinners often as much as men are, maybe not as often, but more so than there used to be. Um, and of course, there's same-sex couples as well. So I, I just, has that world changed in terms of the implication that the mother would get the vast majority of the time with the kids and not the father? I mean, like, that's an old, you know, adage. It's like, uh, dad on the weekends. Is that world right. changing a little bit? Yeah, it has, um, actually. Uh, I, I mean, it's a slow process because there are still a significant amount of, I, I hate to use the word traditional, but, but right. it, 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 that, that, you know, dad went to work and mom stayed home kind of family. But, but you're right. In today's society and in today's culture, um, it's, it's hard for folks to get by with just one, one person earning the, uh, 
all the income. So I, I think the courts are becoming more and more adaptive to the unique situations that we see. Uh, you know, maybe mom's the breadwinner, uh, but maybe mom's the one who's at home during the day with the kids because she's working remotely. Right. Uh, or vice versa. Um, so the, the thing that I encourage people to do always, and I always tell my clients this is, you know, it's not about what the standard or normal, uh, allocation of, uh, rights and responsibilities situation is what works best for you and your family. Tell me what you've been doing before the, you know, there were problems in the marriage and let's try to fashion an arrangement that first and foremost, in my mind, and maybe this is my, you know, grandfather voice speaking, but always in my cases, what's best for those kids? You know, the, the kids are the ones that really get torn apart in a divorce. And right. um, I'm always mindful that while I have a client to represent, I also have an obligation morally to uh, to try to steer people in the direction to do what's right for their kids. Absolutely, yeah, that's great advice, and I think that's a, I think that's something that probably both parents understand right and they want to be a part of that too and when you can remind people what the main focus is it can calibrate conversations a little bit differently all right just one more minute left Roy. i just want to ask you you know a lot of people out there fear getting a divorce they feel like it's going to be the messiest thing in the world and it might be right there might be real big complications but there are situations where especially with there's mutual respect there can be cleaner divorces today than maybe people think right Absolutely. Collaborative divorce uh, is a uh, is a growing field where the parties sit down and try to work through things with a variety of professionals to do what's right for them and for their family. Uh, mediation is a uh, is, is mandated in some situations, but it's becoming more and more common um, as access to the courts becomes more and more difficult. So alternative dispute resolution is out there in, in a variety of different uh methods and methodologies and uh you know i'm a litigator that's what we do but but in order to be a good litigator you also have to know how to settle cases and we are absolutely uh trying to be at the cutting edge of uh of those alternative dispute resolution methods uh again it's the client's case and we want to do uh we want to assist the client to handle it in the, in the way that they want to see it handled and Amen. um that's that's, uh, I think, the best approach. All right. Roy Weiler, president of the ISBA, WeilerLengel.com, W-E-I-L-E-R-L-E-N-G-L-E.com. Roy, we'll talk again soon, okay? I look forward to it, John. Thanks very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. All right. We're going to wrap things up next here on WGN.